We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ's likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, good morning. If you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we are uh, making our way through the book of Ephesians uh, this year, and we are starting in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 today. We're going to go down through verse 14, uh, but we'll focus most of our time on the first six verses of that passage, so just so you know where we're going to be at today. Uh, We've been in a series called Brought Together, and what we've said is that the book of Ephesians is telling us a story. It's the story of redemption. It is the story that God is reconciling us to himself. He's bringing us together with himself again through the cross and resurrection of Christ and our faith in what Jesus has done for us. And it also reconciles us to one another as well. It it does away with dividing walls of hostility that separate people groups. And it enables us to be reconciled to one another as well. And then what we've said the last few weeks is that Paul has kind of turned a corner from talking about what the gospel is to how it impacts our lives on a daily basis. And so this week we're going to be uh, looking at the idea of purity. And so I I thought about how I have a certain proclivity to uh, make terrible stains. And so I last, just last Sunday, we went out to eat at Chipotle after church and, and I uh, somehow managed to uh, stain my dry clean only pants, even though instead of my shirt, which is totally washable. And, and that tends to be the way it works out for me, is I stain the thing that's really difficult to clean um, instead of the thing that's much easier. And so a, a week or two ago, uh, I, was, I was studying at home, and I had, I had my Black Lab puppy out with me, and she was being pretty good, and so I left her alone for just a moment, and she grabbed my highlighter and bit down into it as though it were a bone or a chew toy. And sure enough spilled all the contents of the highlighter out onto our brand new couch. And so I call Brittany, freaking out in panic as I'm Googling what to do, and I'm saying, what the heck do I do? You know, this state is bad. I mean, babe, you don't understand. Like, it's all over the place, and I don't know what to do about this. What do I do? And I'm, like, Googling it, and she's like, I don't know. I've never had this happen before, because Brittany doesn't make stains like I do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, and she's starting to freak out too. She's like, oh my gosh, he's not going to be able to take care of this. I'm going to have to go home, take an extended lunch, and take care of this myself. And I'm like, no, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And sure enough, I did finally get a good portion of the stain out after about 45 minutes of scrubbing and trying to get it out with uh, some, some of Brittany's new dish towels that I felt kind of bad about staining as well. Um, and it took me much longer than it would have taken Brittany. It probably would have taken her five minutes, and she would have got it completely out. And sure enough, she comes home later that day, and turns out I didn't get it all out like I thought I did. And she spends like two to five minutes scrubbing it, and it's gone. And so, like, that's just my luck. I don't, I don't know. Stains, though, can sometimes be hard to get out, can't they? We scrub and we scrub and we scrub and we try and get them out of something that's valuable and, and a lot of times we just can't do it. And, and we're worried that that's going to stain and taint that thing that we value so much uh, and we're not going to be able to get it out. 
And friends, sometimes we can't get stains out. Sometimes we can't. And spiritually, our, our lives are often stained by sin. They're, they're stained by the things that we have done against God and others, or they're stained even by the things that others have done that are wrong against us. And so we, we live lives that are in some way spiritually stained by sin, and, and we need someone who can remove the stains. We need someone who can make us new again, despite what has happened to us, despite what we have done. And that's what Paul is, is pointing us towards, is he's pointing us towards this Jesus who is able to make the stains go away. He's pointing us towards the Christ who not only makes the stains go away, but makes you entirely new in him. Gives you a new identity, a new hope, and a lasting one that never changes, despite what you may do in the future, despite what may happen to you. It never changes. If you're in Christ, you have been made new. And we're continually walking in his grace. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And this week we're going to talk about purity and, and what it means and, and how Christ has enabled us to walk in it. And, and so I wonder what your first experience with uh, sexual immorality or impurity might have been. Um, most of us at a very young age have experienced something. Um, I, I talked with a few guys this, this last week who told me different stories of their lives, how they encountered explicit material riding on a school bus or at home with family members or friends of the family. And, and I, I remember as a child hearing uh, the way that men that I knew talked about women as though they were objects and for sexual pleasure and, and to serve them. And, and I remember hearing on the radio and on TV men talking the same way. And, and how from an early age, my view of human sexuality and my view of how God had made us to be was shaped by these things. And, and we read some really uh, horrifying statistics, such as one survey that said that as many as 50 Christian men and, and 20%, uh, or 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are currently addicted to pornography. And we read that another study found that more than 25% admit to accessing it at the workplace and risking their jobs and livelihoods and their families. And romance novels even increasingly contain more explicit material that psychologists are, are wondering now if, if women's uh, views of human sexuality in our culture have been, have been shaped in a harmful way just by the novels that they read. And, and, and we read that the average age of first exposure to pornographic material is at 11 years old. 11. And I can tell you, for me, it was probably earlier than that. And, then, and we read about sexual abuse, how as many as one in six men and one in four women either have experienced abuse or will experience abuse at some point in their life. And, and, and I've talked with many believers who, who grew up in the church and didn't hear a word about sex other than that you need to be pure, which often communicated to them nothing about what God had designed for us except that something was wrong with them and something that was wrong with sex and that they just needed to avoid it entirely. And so friends, we grow up in an environment that teaches us all sorts of wrong things about God's design for us. 
We grow up in an environment that is tainted and stained by sexual sin and immorality and impurity and, and covetousness, which is idolatry, which is what Paul is going to say. And we'll look at here in just a few minutes. But we grow up in this kind of environment where we need someone who's able to take the stain away. We need someone who is able to make us new. We need someone who is able to redefine categories for us and show us the ways to walk in. And so Paul addresses these issues in Ephesians 5, but before we jump into verse 1 there, I want to read to you something from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20. Again, Paul writing about these issues and writing about the issue of identity. We're going to see three keys to purity that come from knowing Jesus Christ today. And the first is identity, the second is worship, and the third is action. So the first one being identity. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so if you've got a bookmark, you can keep a bookmark in 1 Corinthians 6 there and jump over to Ephesians chapter 5. But the question is, who, who do you think that you are? Oftentimes, here's how we think about us. We, we think we are our own, right? That's why Paul says you're, you're not your own is because most commonly what we think about our lives is that we are our own. We are able to define what is right and wrong for us. We are able to know what is going to make us happy. We are able to know what's going to make us satisfied. And we pursue meaning in life through the things that we want and we pursue. And we think that we can define it. And so we think we're independent. We think we're our own authority. We think that we know what's best for us. And so we put ourselves at the center of our world. And, and our life is made primarily about us and our happiness. And every, everyone else and everything is, is seen as a means to that end of our own happiness, of our own pleasure, of, of seeking our own kingdom, honestly. We make life about ourselves. We place ourselves at the center of our world, and it becomes problematic. Here's just some common phrases that I think most of us have heard um, that kind of illustrate this idea that we think we're our own. We think we own ourselves, and we think that life is about us. We, uh, from an early age, we say things like, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me, Right? From an early age, we say that, and ironically, the, the funny part about it is, is oftentimes we say that to someone who, in fact, can tell us what to do, and in fact, is the boss of us, um, but we learn to say these things at an early age. It's, it's wired into who we are as sinners in a broken and fallen world. We make life about us, and so we say things like, you, you can't tell me what to do, you're not the boss of me, and, and then we hear things, uh, advice from others, well, do what makes you happy. That's how you should approach decision-making in life. You should do what makes you most happy. Pursue what you want. Or, or as Disney has communicated to us, follow your heart. 
And as we read in, in cards that we buy at the stores, the same message, right? Follow your heart's desires. If you follow your heart, then you're going to experience joy in life. That's the message that's communicated to us, and it's a false promise. Because what we've studied in Ephesians is that our hearts have deceitful desires that, that lie to us and make false promises that they can't deliver on, right? We, we tend to make life about us, and, and here's the sad part, is that this kind of infiltrates the church as well. And so here's just a few quotes from what is sadly published as a Christian book, which I hope you'll be able to see is not the case at all. It says, you are meant to be the hero of your own story. You and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. You should be the very first of your priorities. Friends, where is Christ Friends, we make our lives about us. We place ourselves at the center and we listen to this kind of counsel thinking that it's going to bring happiness and meaning and fulfillment in life. And friends, guess what? We're in the same spot every time we listen to it. And yet we still listen to the same counsel. We still listen to the same advice that our friends give us. We still listen to the same message that our culture and the country and the cultural environment in which we live in that makes it all about the individual, that makes it all about us, we still listen to this idea and we keep pursuing it, believing that it's going to bring about these things for us, happiness, meaning, fulfillment, security. And friends, it never does. We find ourselves more depressed in our culture than many others in the world because this is the kind of pursuit that we have. Whenever you are at the center of everything, Listen, you can't hold that kind of weight. You're never meant to be at the center of your life. And if you place yourself at the center continually, you might experience brief moments of happiness and joy, but you'll never experience the lasting kind that you're looking for. (laughs) Friends, we make this about us. And Paul, here's what he's going to say in Ephesians 5. He is going to reframe our identity and remind us of our identity in Christ and who we really are. So read with me in verse 1, he says, where we read about identity being pure and love because of who you are. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So I want to direct your attention to just a few words that Paul gives us here that, that define and reshape who we are. He says we're imitators of God, we are beloved children, and we are saints. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, we read that we were bought with a price, that you are not your own, and that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. See, all of these things are meant to be the things that define who we are and our purpose in life. And if we allow them to do so, then what we will find is meaning, lasting joy and contentment, and true security. Not the kind of false safety that money promises us, but actual security despite the kind of circumstances we're in. Because it never changes the rock of Christ. He is always firm, and we're able to stand upon him. 
And so let's look at a few of these aspects. He says, we're imitators of God. We, we image God. As we read in Genesis 1, that's what we read about us. One of the first things that God tells us about who we are, who he's made us to be, is that we were made in his image to reflect his, his glory, right? And so if this is how we're made, then life poss- can't possibly be about you and me. It can't possibly be about us. Because we were made to imitate him, to reflect his glory, to be about him. See, friends, we were meant to be about God. God is meant to be about the center of our hearts and lives. We were made to image and reflect his glory, not our own. And we're made as beloved children, Paul says. We are redeemed by Christ and made beloved children. And so we're, we're loved by a wise father who actually knows what is best for us, who actually knows what we need and is able to provide it. See, that's the difference, isn't it? See, we, we believe these false promises of things that, that the Bible calls idols, like sex and money and power, and they promise things like meaning, security, happiness, but they can't actually deliver on them. They don't have the power to do so. They don't have the resources to do so. They always run out. And friends, what Paul is saying is that we are beloved children of a wise father who is the source of all things, who is the creator who made all things and is actually able to provide what we need. So we're able to trust him because he knows better than us what we need. And we're able to place him at the center of our lives because it was how we were made to live life. And then he says we're saints. So we're, we're holy ones who are devoted to serving the purposes of God. And so look what he says in verse 2. He says about how we should walk. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so he says, because of the way that God has loved you in Christ, it changes how you live your life. It changes you so that you love others and you love God as God has loved you in Jesus. We look at how God has loved us. We look at the kind of sacrificial love that is exhibited in who Jesus is, what he's done in coming from heaven to earth and dying on a Roman cross for the things that we had done wrong and we love others in the same way. It changes how we approach people, right? And so... So if this is to change how we approach people, then it changes how we view love. So just as, as, a, as a laser is focused and controlled and accomplishes its purpose, if we are framed by, if our lives are framed and our desires are framed by biblical love, then when we express human sexuality, if it, is, it will be like a laser that is pointed in the right direction and actually accomplishes the right purposes. And so if we want to understand God's design for us, we have to go to Scripture, and then Scripture, like a laser, points us in the right direction so that we can actually enjoy the things that he's made so that we actually experience the fullness of joy and pleasure in this life. It's only found in these things. I've I've said again and again, and I will continue saying it, that the Father doesn't want to withhold things from you. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy. And when we color outside the boundaries, what we experience is an intense pleasure, but it is not the kind of lasting joy and pleasure that God has designed for you to experience. It's temporary, and it doesn't last, and it brings chaos and confusion and destruction into your life and your relationships. It tears them apart. 
But if we look to God's word and we allow it to point us like a laser does, it focuses us in and allows us to experience love and sexuality as they were intended to be. Because instead of of love and sexuality being about us, it's, it's about glorifying God and serving someone we love. So men, let's just talk for a moment because oftentimes we make these things about us, right? We, we want these things from our spouse and, and we make it about us. And the reason that we don't experience such joy in this area of life is because we've made it about us. And it was never designed to be about us. It was designed to be something that glorifies God and how he's designed us to work in coming together with a person who is different than us in a special type of union that results in procreation. It results in the glory of God expanding and going throughout the earth. And it also results in pleasure and joy that can only be experienced in a committed covenantal relationship. And when we make it about us, we don't experience that kind of fullness of joy that God intends. And, and in fact, our, our spouses are often unhappy with us and not experiencing joy either because we've made it about us, right? Men, if, if you want to experience the greatest amount of pleasure in this area of your life, then approach this as though it's about your spouse and not you. Approach this as though the way that Christ has loved you with humility and sacrifice is how you ought to love your spouse. That's when we experience the fullness of joy is when we allow the way that God has loved us in Christ to shape how we love our spouses, how we love others, and how we approach life and purity. And so Paul says in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And so what's he saying? Is he saying that Christians shouldn't talk about these things? Is he saying that this is a taboo subject that we should avoid? No, I don't think so at all because Paul brings it up, right? I mean, Paul's talking about it. He's he's naming it. And so he's not saying that you ought not to talk about it. And, and sadly, that's a lot of our experiences if we grow up in the church is that we don't talk about these things and it destroys relationships because we don't talk about these things. God wants us to talk about this because it's his gift to us. It's made by God. It's the first chapter of the Bible, right? And so if, if God lays something out for us in the first chapter of the Bible that he wants us to build our lives upon, this kind of truth, then it ought to be something that we discuss and talk about as Christians. And what Paul is meaning here is not that we shouldn't talk about it, but that this kind of sexual immorality, this kind of coloring outside the lines, and this kind of misuse of God's good gift to us is something that shouldn't be named among us because we've been remade in God's image. We've been redeemed from sin. We've been made new by Christ. And so it is proper that this kind of sin shouldn't be a part of our lives, but Paul knows that it is. That's why he's talking about it, right? He's he's addressing this issue because he knows it's a struggle that we have. He knows that we need to reframe our minds and our hearts around our identity in Christ because it shapes how we view purity and love. 
And he says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so we begin to talk about how worship impacts this area of our lives. How being pure in speech by thanking God is, that's what Paul's getting at here, is that it's all connected, that identity and then worship are a part of how we should approach purity. And, and he says, no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. And so I, I think back to when I was a kid, the way that I heard men talk about women, um, calling them names that objectified them as though, uh, as, uh, as though they were meant to be physical objects that served them. And then I remember in high school how it was very popular, even amongst my circles of friends, to, to rank girls in school based on how attractive they were. And it just further sears into your mind and heart this way of viewing sexuality, this way of viewing people that is contrary to God's design. And it, it breaks down relationships and, and intimacy and it destroys what they were created by God to be and it makes them that much more difficult when this kind of talk is how we talk about one another. And so... What Paul is getting at is that the words that you speak will reflect who you worship. He says, instead of having this kind of language as a part of your life, you ought to be filled with thanksgiving towards God. Right? He says that the way that you fight against impurity in your life, the way that you fight against this kind of language in your life is by thanking God for who he is, what he has made, and how he's designed things to work. And so... Again, it's placing God at the center of our lives and allowing who he is and what he's done to frame how we approach life, how we approach these issues. And so he says, replace it with thanksgiving because honestly, the kind of language that we're talking about here is idolatrous language, right? If we talk about others in a way that objectifies them as though they're created to serve us, then who's God in that instance? It's us. If we talk in this way, what we're doing is we are using idolatrous language that is intended to say that I am God, you were created to serve me and my pleasure and my joy. And so it's idolatry. That's what Paul's gonna get at here in, in verse five. He says, he says this. Would help if I could find the little five. There we go. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so Paul is saying, if, if these things, if this kind of sexual immorality and purity, if, if this is characterizing your life, if you are, if, because here's the thing, our hearts are ruled by who or what we worship as well. And so, if, if our hearts are ruled by sexual immorality and sin, then they're not ruled by Jesus. And so Paul says, you can't possibly be walking in these things and allowing them to rule your life in the way that you approach life if you're expecting to be a part of the kingdom of God. Because if these things are what are ruling your heart and life, then you're not ruled by the king. You're ruled by a different master. And it's your own desire. It's, it's your own sin that rules over you. It, it makes you think back to Genesis 4 where 
where God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door, desiring him, wanting to rule over him, and that he must overcome it. See, friends, we, we tend to think about sin as though it is this cute little pet in our lives, and it's as though we've raised a lion, as I've heard other preachers say, it's as though we've raised a lion from being a small cub, and we've tended to it, and we've given it a cute little name, and, and we raise it, and we raise it, and all the time thinking that we're in control, and one day the lion devours you, because he's in charge, because he's more powerful than you are. See, we think that we have sin under control because no one sees it in us. We think that we can hide these things. And, and, and in fact, what we've been trying to do with sin since the beginning, since Genesis 3, is we've been trying to hide it. Because at a level, we know that it's sin against God and that it's harmful to others as well. And so we try to hide it because we're ashamed and we think that if we can hide it successfully then we've got it under control and, and it doesn't really need to be addressed. Well, friends, Paul says it's idolatry. It's the worship of a false god. And, and so what is sexual immorality? What is impurity? What's, what's Paul getting at here? Well, sexual immorality is the use of sex outside of God's purposes and intentions for it. And so a good way to think about this is that Timothy Lane, a biblical counselor, talks about is, is it's like fire inside of a fireplace. When the fire is inside the fireplace, you can gather around it and it brings warmth and joy and comfort and all sorts of good things. You can enjoy it. But as soon as you take the fire out of the fireplace, you're still going to experience the heat in a really intense way. But it's not going to bring joy and comfort that lasts. It's, it, you're going to experience a brief moment of heat, and then it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your home. It's going to destroy everything that you own. It's going to destroy everything you have because it's been taken out of its proper context. And so with, with sexuality, when we remove it from the marriage covenant that God designed it to be expressed in, when we remove it from that Place. When we take it out of the fireplace, we still experience this intense heat, this intense pleasure, right? That's why we do it. But we don't realize that it's ruling over us and that it's destroying us at the same time. We think it's a cute little pet that we've got under control, and in reality, it's just waiting to pounce how serious it is. And so C.S. Lewis, talking about marriage and sexuality, he says this. He says, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and to make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than there is the, than about the pleasure of eating. It means you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. And so C.S. Lewis says there's this environment in which this can be beneficial to you. 
And God's shown us the environment and it's marriage. Just as food can be beneficial to our bodies when we eat it in the right way, instead of chewing it up just to experience the pleasure of taste and then spitting it out, which doesn't benefit us in any way. In fact, it would, it would eventually destroy our bodies because we weren't consuming nutrients. If, if sex is experienced in the covenant of marriage, it brings joy. It brings good things. It brings things that God designed to happen. And whenever it's not, it's something that rules over us because it's an idol. So idolatry is simply the worship of something as a God that is not God, expressed through our desires, beliefs, and actions. And so it's, it's taking a good thing, and it's making it a God thing or an ultimate thing, which is always a bad thing like we've talked about. And it's, it's something which is not ultimate or central, being valued as though it is central and ultimate and what matters most. This is what idolatry is. Tim Keller says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe what kind of relation, this kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And so we read in Romans 1, where Paul talks about idolatry, he says, and he also talks about sexuality in Romans 1 as well. He says this, he says, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. And so what we're getting at with idolatry and sexual immorality is worship. It's who do you worship? Do you worship Christ or do you worship you? Do you worship Christ or your pleasure? Do you worship Christ or do you worship power? Do you worship Christ or do you worship money and finances and materials and things that you have and possess? What is it that in your heart of hearts, as Tim Keller said, you say that you need? Is it God or is it something else? If you were to have, here's how you know what an idol is in your life. If it were taken away from you, would life be worth living if you weren't able to replace it? Let me put it that way. Because oftentimes we think, yeah, if this gets taken away from me, I still got this, this, and this. Those are your other idols. The things that you just said, I still got this, I still got this. Friends, whatever you think that you cannot live without is the idol of your heart. And Paul is saying that for many of us, it's pleasure, it's sexuality, it's, it's all of these things. And, and the terrible thing about this is that idols make false promises they can't keep. They promise meaning, they promise joy, they promise happiness, they promise security. And they can't deliver on those things because all of those things can only be found in the way they were meant to be found in God. In the creator. That's why Paul says the problem of idolatry is we've replaced the creator in our hearts with something that is created. And so by, by very definition, it can't, provi- it can't provide, it's not the source. We ask things and people and desires 
and the things that we pursue in life to be gods in our life and they can't bear the weight. Oftentimes this is why marriages are destroyed. It's because we ask our spouse to be God. We seek out everything in terms of meaning and joy in life from them and they can't deliver it. A relationship in your life will never deliver what only God has promised to provide. Neither will money, neither will sex, neither will power, or a job, or a promotion. Anything that you're pursuing in life, hoping that it's going to provide you something that is ultimate, is something only God can provide you. And we pursue these things to our own destruction. And the problem is, is that they're enslaving and defining. And so, anytime that we talk about sexual immorality, sin in our lives, uh, almost always it has, by the time we start talking about it, it has enslaved us. It is ruling. It's not a cute little pet anymore. It has started to devour our lives and our relationships and the things that God created for us to enjoy in life. It has started to destroy them already or confuse them. We, we feel like we can't stop. We, we feel like we have to have it for happiness and satisfaction. We, we believe oftentimes that uh, sexual sin defines us. That's how enslaving it is for us. So, so we wrestle with things like same-sex attraction and we define ourselves as gay. Or we wrestle with the abuse we've experienced as a child and we define ourselves as a victim. Or we wrestle with a temptation towards pornography or adultery and, and we define ourselves as an addict who's addicted to these things and enslaved to them. And, and we begin to allow sexuality to define who we are. And particularly, not, not sexuality in a good sense, but sexuality in all the ways that it's broken is what we see as defining us. That's how powerful this kind of sin is in our hearts and lives. And that's why Paul spends so much time in his letters addressing it. He addresses it in Ephesians 5. He addresses it in Romans chapter 1. He addresses it in 1 Corinthians 6 and 10 and other places as well. He knows how big of a problem this is for us and that it enslaves us and defines us. And he's pointing us to who we are in Christ and to the God we can actually worship and serve and who actually provides. Because, friends, you, don't, you belong to God. You don't belong to your attractions or your desires, actually. You, you, you belong to this God who was abused for you on the cross, who brings healing, true healing, not the kind of healing that you just start to think a little bit differently about your situation, but the kind of healing that can only come from finding your refuge in him. And he died so that you could be freed from the things that enslave you. So that your sexual addiction he could free you from, so that you could walk in the newness of life, so that you could have a new life, so that you could be freed from the things that you felt like you had to have in life for joy and meaning and happiness and security. He has freed us from these things. He has made us new. In Ephesians 5 verse 6, we read that words also, words that you receive reveal who you worship. Here's what Paul says. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. So he said, idols make false promises they can't deliver on, right? 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So those who don't know Jesus, who don't know God, who are outside of Christ, that's the sons of disobedience who are walking in sin and being ruled and mastered by it, like God warned Cain about. So when we're ruled by the master of sin instead of our new master, Jesus Christ, that's what Paul's saying. He says, don't let these things deceive you with empty words. And so we think about how our culture defines love. And I, just, I was just curious, so I, I did a quick Google search. I said, what is love? And I just wanted to know what would pop up. So here's some of the things that Google brought back. Like the first four or five articles, these were kind of the headlines of them. Love is a force of nature. Love is the most powerful emotion that we experience. Love is involuntary. Love is a drive, just like thirst. And then probably one of my favorites was this eHarmony article that said, love is chemistry, commitment, infatuation, and compatibility. And so friends, the way our culture defines love is as though it's a master. Did you hear that? It's involuntary. It's something that happens to us. It is something that you can't control. That's how our culture defines love and sexuality. Is it's as though it's a master that rules over us that we cannot help but serve it. We cannot help but pursue it. We cannot help ourselves, is what our culture says. You do what makes you happy. Because this is something that happens to you, not something that you do. That's how our culture defines love. But the way the Bible defines love What we read in chapter 5, verse 2 of Ephesians, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the the way that the Bible talks about love is as though it is a choice to sacrifice for the good of another. As we as we value that person more highly than we value ourselves, as we exercise a humble love that exercises itself in service towards someone else. And we we love this way, Paul says, because this is the way that God has loved us. This is why we change how we approach love and sexuality. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because of how God has pursued us and shown us the way and shown us what love actually is. It's a choice to sacrifice for the good of another. That's what biblical love is. It's not something that happens to you that you can't control. It's not a a powerful emotion that takes control of your heart and life and you can't do anything else but pursue it. Friends, that's a God. That is a master. That's not love. So Paul says, who we worship is directly related to our purity. And he tells us to not be deceived with empty words. And, and so we've looked at identity and worship. And then finally, he, he ends it with action. So just hear Paul's words that we, we sung about light and, and these things and the ways that God exposes darkness and, and the light of life that is Christ. And here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, do not become partners with him. For at one time, you were darkness. So he says, this is who you used to be. You didn't just sin, you used to 
be sinful. He used to be darkness. And he says, but now you are light in the Lord. You've been changed by Christ if your faith is in him. You are made new. He says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so he says, the situations and the circumstances you find yourself in, you ought to frame those through the lens of the word of God. You ought to try and discern. And so discernment implies that there's some situations and circumstances in life where the Bible doesn't just lay out a step-by-step to-do list for you to accomplish, right? It says you've got to discern it based on biblical truth. And so the Bible gives us the truth that we need to approach life and discerning it. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so we get honest with one another about the sin in our lives and our hearts. We point it out in each other, and we help one another towards Christlikeness. And we're careful to get the log out of our own eyes first. And then we approach one another and point one another towards growth in Christ. Matt Chandler tells this story about this conference that was geared towards youth that dealt with purity that he attended one time. And, and the way the speaker started out his message was he took a flower, beautiful, and said, here, pass this around the room. And towards the end of the message, he, he called for the flower back, and he said, hey, can I have my flower back? And sure enough, he, someone brings it up to him, and, and it's all beaten up and torn and, and disgraced. And the speaker looks at the audience and says, now who would want that? So be pure. And Matt Chandler said he just almost couldn't help but scream out, Jesus wants the flower. Jesus wants it. So I don't know what kind of brokenness you've experienced in life. I don't know where you're at, what kind of sins you've committed, what kind of things have been done to you. But I know that we all bring brokenness into this room. And friends, the message is not Be pure and get your act together. The message is that Jesus can make us pure. Is that Jesus can take our stains away. Is that Jesus wants what has been torn up and broken. He is pursuing you and calling out to you and wanting you to come to him for meaning and satisfaction and joy. So friends, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. God, we need you for the sinful things that we've done in life, the ways we've rebelled against your good designs for us. God, we need you for the sin that has been committed against us, that maybe we couldn't even help, but something that's happened to us. God, we need your grace. We need you to make us new. We need you to bring the kind of cleansing that only you can bring by your grace and trusting in you. So God, would you help us? Would you help us to turn from ourselves, from our sin, from our suffering, and to turn towards you, to rest in you,
the one who is the true refuge, the one who truly provides meaning and joy and satisfaction. Jesus, help us. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.